Just a quick note before today's show. We have transformed our entire platform to respond to the current crisis and increased our production of both podcast episodes and blogs, but we cannot do so without your support. Please consider making a donation or contributing as a volunteer to support our active engagement at this critical time. on the 1st of March that um, I got arrested from the police crackdown of the protest. Um, it was, um, so we, they were pro, like, they were really trying to disperse the crowd um, through, from, through the last weeks of February. And um, yeah, so it was one of the first day that, for, um, it was on the third day that they um, used flash grenades on the crowds. So the first second day, um, first two days that they used the flash grenades and try to disperse the crowds, um, we like I was like I um, witnessed it and like I experienced the first time first um, flash grenades for two days, and then so on the third day, um, yeah, again we went out for protest, and then um, yeah we we reached to this, so we reached to this protest place, and. Um, Within about three hours into the crackdown was when I got arrested. Mm -hmm. And how did they get you? So um, we, uh, we were camping at this um, Badoma Street in Sanjiang. So while we were camping and like, while we were like, protesting and having like, the defense shield teams and everything on the, on the streets, so it was one of those days when we were like fighting back with the shields and um, shields and the covers and everything. Yeah. So we were, yeah. So then they tried to break down the barriers that we put in, put up on the roads, and um, basically they break through all the barriers with the bulldozers, and um, yeah, like twenty police officers start 
marching in from the front. So we started slowly dispersing. And so we had to, like, from the whole crowd, we had to run. And, like, um, and then while, while we were running, I found a restaurant. So I went into one of the restaurants to hide. But unfortunately, two police officers, um, like, run up behind me. And so immediately, not immediately, but, like, around, like, after some altercation, like three of us got caught from that, um, from that restaurant. Mm, right. So you, so you were hiding in the restaurant when the police saw you and they came in. There, you mentioned there was an altercation. So was it a bit of a physical fight to be able to capture and detain you? Yeah. Um, when the police actually, um, when the police saw me run into the restaurant, but we actually managed to have like quite some time for everyone to hide. So, but what happened to me in the case was because I was one of the last person, I ran out of places to hide. So, um, yeah, once when I ran into the back, I saw some people already hiding in the toilet area. So, um, I was just trying to find another place to hide and like there was no more places and I, I didn't want to go into their room again so that the door doesn't open again. Yeah, so that's why um, at that moment, um, while I was trying to look for the place and then um, look for a place to hide, that's when um, police were slowly coming in from the front and then all the way to the back, and they found me all the way out in the back of the, of the bar, of the restaurant. Yeah. So, yeah, there was an altercation in the sense when um, the police pulled me out, like, so they were aiming, like, the rubber bullet guns towards me. And he was ready to shoot. Um, so I was, um, yeah, he was ready to shoot and told, told me to slowly come up. So while, when, when I was out of the corner, they, um, two other police officers came up and tried to hit me. So um, as they were hitting me, so I was trying to, like, just avoid like when we were trying to hit the head, I was just like um, blocking with my hand, right, automatically. And that's when the police officers were like, so they start like three or four guys start running towards me and then like start hitting me to the ground, like till I fall on the ground, right. And then I got like, my head got hit with like quite two or three big blows. So that's when I screamed and yelled and like submit to them and say like, um, yeah, so... Um, I will comply to whatever they're doing. So, yeah, before then, um, they, like, yeah, and then I asked them, like, you know, you're not actually allowed to arrest me or, like, what charges are you guys um, putting on me? I was just in the bar. Um, but they wouldn't listen, and they would pull me out. And then um, they told me to sit on the on the street in front of the restaurant, so we had to sit on the street with our um, hands to the back, and then they handcuffed me with my hands pulled to the back. And had you ever been in any kind of fight before this? Um, no, not actually. I've never actually been in any physical fight. Right, so this was the first time you'd really had violence inflicted on you was when police were surrounding you and hitting you to the ground and getting several blows into the head. Yes. Mm -hmm. So then you're outside and you're being detained, uh, waiting to enter the police car, I assume. So what is going through your mind at this point? 
Yeah, um, at that point, I was still like, it was two things, right? Like part of me still wants to um, make a run for it if I could. But then um, like, because like the handcuff was cuffed pretty tight and they were holding me, as they were holding me and walking me towards to the police car, they were continuously, they were throwing out threats. Like they, they, like the police were saying, like they will easily, um, they can easily kill me, and like, you know, um, whoever that was trying to like peek from the windows and stuff. So they were like pointing the guns towards the onlookers and people on the side, and to anyone, any people they see far, they were pointing towards the their guns towards the people, the crowd, and then. Um, yeah, shouting out death threats to the crowd. And was this also your first ever encounter with police? Um, in in a sense of a criminal, like to be treated as a criminal and thrown into the jail, yes, this was my first right. time. And so then you get to the police station and what happens next? Um, when we got to the police station, they told us to keep our heads down and then um, like try to kind of crawl towards the police station. So it was from the van to the station's like front desk or where they have their um, entry desk. So they kind of told us to like bend down and then walk while bending down. Yeah, so um, they make us, yeah, get low and then walk towards towards the desk and then on near towards the entrance of the jail cell they um, makes make us lie and they make us sit down in two pairs they make us sit down in pair, um, pairs rows of two and then six of us have to sit down on the ground for a bit with our hands on our head um, for a little while and then and then from then they kicked us into the jail so we were in the, in the cell while we were being like kept in the dark. We keep asking the police officers like to tell us why we why we're being detained and to tell us like if we're being charged or arrested or um, and we were really asking the police officers to respond to like give us like let us reach our home right to to contact our home and to give us access to a phone call. Which they, which they never give. So um, for the whole day after, after a whole day of being locked up in the cell, then at seven eight p.m. they finally took us into the car and then um drove us out. They didn't say where we're being taken to. Um, they didn't tell us like what's going to happen to us or anything. So even in the jail cell, our um our biggest fear was being re like released after curfew back onto the street, right? Because um, at that time, during the curfew time, they still use that. They are shooting people out at night. And also there's some incidents where they are releasing all the prisoners back out on the street, like with, like injected with, um, injected with drugs. Yeah, so if you heard that news, like some people were um, injected with drugs, some of the detainees were released from prisons, but like high on drugs and running on the streets, running around the streets with like weapons in their hands doesn't actually 
know what they're doing. So, um, so yeah, we were quite afraid that we will be released in that scenario. But, um, but luckily, it, that didn't happen. But all they did was take us to the straight, um, straight to the maximum security insane prison. Mm, that's a notorious prison. Uh, yes, the famous prison. And by that time, that's when we know we were like, shit, there's no way back because we're actually now in prison. Mm, so what, what was going through your mind at that time when you go to this notorious, infamous prison? You don't know, you're in the police car not knowing what's happening to you, what's your, what you're being charged with, where you're going to go and what they're going to do with you. And then you realize you're being led into this awful maximum security prison and saying what, what was going through your mind at that point. Yeah, um, like my... In my mind, it was just like I was just trying to think of a ways that I can get out of it, right? Like, so I was, um, yeah, like escape, escape. How can I, you know, get out of this? How can I get out of this? At this point, I was still like quite naive and still stubborn and think like I can still easily get out of this. Um, yeah, or like I was still thinking like, okay, these, like, if I showed enough um, empathy or like, to get the sympathy out of them, then like I'm sure they will still release us um, because they're only human. So that's, that's, this is what how I was trying to plan my way um, out from the prison, right? Not trying to be like, um, yeah, trying to trying to act like I'm one of the weak, weakest link and then trying to win their empathy. And did that work? Yeah, so this is how I was planning, but it didn't work. So you were booked in the prison then? Um, yeah. So um, so then we were. So when we we reached to the gate of the prison, uh, we reached to the prison gate, and then the car stopped. And then because there was like thirty two of us, and when we we're going, like when we kind of have an idea that we might be going towards insane, um, there were some people in the crowd, like some of my cellmates, as I call them now. Um, yeah, <clears throat> we're actually saying that they might be, we, we might be going to the insane prison. Um, and yeah, so we were, um, so at that point, the all of us, the information becomes like the word of mouth information. So someone who have been to, like, so in the crowd, there's someone who has been to prison. So he was mainly like kind of leading us and saying like how things are in prison and how, yeah, so how um, he had to go through times because when he did times, how um, how horrible these police are in terms of trying to like even do normal crimes and while they while he served time. And so, what what kinds of things was he preparing you for? No, Malak. Mainly when he he was so when we arrived, he was saying like the main the main things that we were. Like the basic prison rules of like he was saying like how, um, you know every every cell in prison have like two main secu- like um two main like heads of the rooms. So they are someone like they're also prisoners, but they're in charge of like discipline. Like someone's in charge of discipline disciplinary. Yeah, like disciplinary stuff, and one's in charge of like the management of the room. Like he's 
like he tries to keep everyone like in control and in order. Yeah, so he was also this guy was like he went to early on he went to prison with drugs. So he was just um yeah, so he was just telling us how like people in prison like how bad this situation is on how they have to sleep and like some of the sleeping conditions that we have to go through. Um, and then some of the strict rules that how we cannot be like staying up, staying up and talking after nine o'clock and whatnot. But um, yeah, when we arrived to Insane and the first time I walked into Insane, like I was quite, um, I don't know how to put it, but like there was, it was still surreal that this place, like it was, as grim as it was, it was quite busy as well, because um, because there was a lot of people being arrested at that time. Like, so when we were in there, there was already five hundred of the kids that was arrested in the night before. Yeah. So um, yeah, there was like tens tens of people's like just moving around in pairs, pair of twos, and, like going left, going right. And then um, there there were some other people with prison uniforms, like not prisoners' uniforms. So there were people wearing like blues, blue tops, and blue longi. Right, because blue blue is the color that prisoners wear in Myanmar. Yeah, so dark blue is the they used to wear like full white, but now it's like dark blue for for the whole top and bottom. So yeah, there were some of the prisoners going around with like big bucket of um, stuff too, and then we learned. So then and then so yeah, we were we were like we got in. We were stationed. We were registered with our name and our father's name, and then we were placed into a cell. Mm. And how about the approximate ages of the people that you were with and you were seeing? Um, um, there was quite a. It was quite a big range because um, when I was arrested, I think the youngest person in my group was 23, but the oldest person that came with us was 69. So this was this 69 years old guy, he was arrested while he was on his home. They came, the police, the soldiers came up into his, into his, to, up to his apartment, broke the door down, like punched him and then pulled, dragged him down and arrest him and accused him of pouring hot water on them which he didn't do but i think he had some like opposition groups like supporting wallpaper and stuff in his home so you get into insane prison you see all the bustling activity happening all around it's a surreal experience as I would imagine, and you mentioned that you were then shown to your cell. Yeah, we we were put into our cells, and then they said like they will go through like um, they will take us to the interrogation afterwards. So they said at the moment, so at at that time in in, in the in insane, they actually that they actually feed us. So um, when we got inside, um, the the prison guards came and then say like inform us that we will need to do the interrogation, like go through the interrogation test tonight. And by this time, it was already 9, 9.30, 10, that we arrived to the cell. 
and um, and luckily I was wearing a watch, so no one else was wearing a watch, so I could still keep track of time. Yeah, and um, that that was the only watch that we have in the whole cell was my watch and one other man. Oh wow, right, because they took everyone's phone, so most people don't wear watches these days. Yeah. Mm. How many people were in the cell? So when we arrived, there was already like, um, there was, I think, there was t 10 other people already arrived. So total of us becomes 42. Mm. So it was one large, big cell. Yeah. So the cell was quite huge. So one, the cell can actually fit up to about 100. Yeah. So when we reached to the cell, so what we were given was um, was two pair of blankets and one pair of like a blue longi and one one pair of one spoon one plastic spoon and one um, tray like you know those some um, type of food trays that have like the compartment food trays like a bento box type of metal food trays yeah so they provide us with each of those stuff and then told us to um yeah told us to wait until we've been we will be called again and did they look through your phone did your phone have things that could incriminate you um at that time my phone i like i left my like my phone wasn't how do you put it like they didn't look through my phone because it was at the early stage where they were not looking for like evidence properly. So without checking my phone, without checking anything, um, without checking my um, bags properly, they just like um, arrested me because I was dressed like that. So it was quite quite one um, ridiculous thing. Was one delivery guy, food delivery guys, um, was arrested as well. So he was arrested together with me when we were all six in the car. One of them was full dressed in a delivery uniform. Um, and because he was wearing a helmet and he was on a bike and he was full dressed with, in black and neon green um, of the delivery, his delivery uniform. And yeah, so he got arrested. Yeah, so they were like arresting people based off how right. It sounds like initially, at least, you were somewhat fortunate. I mean, of course, you, you were not fortunate in being detained or being beaten before you were brought to the car, but you did seem fortunate in that they didn't check your phone at that time. I'm definitely one of the more fortunate ones because, um, yeah, even when I got, after I got arrested and after we talked to everyone after the interrogation, even after, right after the interrogation amongst us, there was 10, 11, 11 of us got, like, beaten up, just interrogating, because they were charged um, with, so when, when they were charged with, like, the assault to the police as a, as a side note to, to our names, that's when they were, like, um, beat us up during the interrogation. Mm. Right. So definitely there's been a lot of people that have not been so fortunate. And of course, there have been many cases where people have been killed in police custody. 
So that also has to be a concern running through everyone's mind. Yeah, like for I was like I was fortunate because like my day was the fir- one of the first day that they stopped cracking down, and like I can see it in, from the inside. There was no news of the outside news, and there was no means for me to like contact to my family or whatever. So, um, but like we can tell from each day that people getting arrested the next days and the day after and the day after it just keeps getting worse and worse because when we arrived like on my day there was only like there was two person like no bleeding cause there was like two three people that got beaten up pretty bad and I mean like we got beaten up pretty bad but like no bleeding case or like no one have a cracked skull but from the from the 2nd of March to the 3rd, 4th, 5th, and as day keeps going um, into the month of March, the um, injuries getting worse and worse, and we, we started seeing like much more worse injuries. And one after you, another. you saw that personally? Yeah, like, I mean, like, people, whoever came in, so um, inside, because there was no more communication, no other way form of communication rather than just verbal communication, right? So, um, yeah, so people were just, um, so um, when we were in prison, like my parents, before going to prison, my parents was like always saying like, oh, when you actually have to go in there, like make sure you're not known and like make sure you like stay to yourself and don't talk to a lot of people and just stay, um, you know, like stay away from other people, right? Um, that's what my mom used, like my parent warned me before I was arrested. So they were actually warning you about how to behave once you were in prison. So your parents actually were concerned this was a real possibility. Um, yes, like since day one, right? Like since day one of the protest, like we started our protest moves on the 3rd of, Feb- 3rd of February. Like three days after the initial coup day. Yeah, so, um, like, I was prepared for it. I was prepared to, like, either get arrested or get, like, get the bullet one day, right? Yeah, like, um, yeah, so I was discussed, like, I would, we were always discussed with my parents about um, how, like, my parents will always be warning us about how things were bad back in their days, like back in the 88 revolution, how people got treated and how they heard stories of the news of these people that got treated so bad in prison. And were they trying to encourage you not to go out or were they supportive and just giving you advice for keeping safe? Like, um, so on the first three, four days that I went out, like they were supportive in a sense, but they were only supportive like they couldn't stop me, right? So they allowed me to go out, but they wanted to keep checking in on me. So which was an annoying thing because, um, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. So they were, they were, they try to be informative in the early, like in the early days. They try to be informative, but they keep falling into the track um, trap of this um, psychological warfare that the police were using on us, right? So on the on the third day that we actually go out for a huge march, 
um, only on the triple five, um, I mean five two days. On the day that everyone went out, two 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 two, um, twenty second of February, two thousand twenty two. Yeah. So on that day, everyone was out, but now from the police side, they posted like uh, they posted a photo of a sniper on a rooftop at Sule. Yeah. So um, when that photo came out, like everyone was freaked, and like my family who called me and said, "Don't go to Sule because there's sniper there." And, yeah, so, but we still end up going to Sule because, like, we, like, just while we're walking and while we're in the heat, like, I just call out bullshit to them. Yeah, it was a fake photo, right? Yeah, it was a photo from 2008. Right, right. It was real photo, but taken a different time. Yeah, these are not the brightest guys in the room. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, so even at that point, right, like, I'm like, well, like, I just told my mom as well, straight up, like, mom, if I get shot, like, like what? Like, if there's snipers on the rooftop, who are they shooting? <laughs> That's all I said. Like, if they actually, if, if like, I, I just told them, like, right? Like, I just at that point, I just thought, like, they're not that type of um, cruel institution to do it to their own people. I was naive again, I guess. Yeah, yeah, a, a lot of people were in those early days. Yeah, and then, um, and then as day gets worse. Um, yeah, we be, keeps hearing all these arrests and arrests. And I think, like, so, yeah, so by this time now, I'm, I'm inside prison, and we were, so they kind of just, like, blocked the whole um, outside news, so we were not hearing what is going on on the outside at all. So there's no way for us to um, know the know the news or like any updates on what's going on outside but only keep seeing pe- new people getting arrested and as those more people are coming in you also mentioned that you're starting to see more and more serious injuries and beatings of those prisoners is that right yes yeah so as more people are coming in like so every uh, still in the in the prison what they really try to do is they try to separate each of us so they really try to keep the people separate from each other as as much as they can so they try to divide us um from from the first of march arrestees to the fourth of march fourth of march arrestees we were all sent like we were all packed in one cell building and then um, and then later onwards um, later onwards the dates of the other like the later days got sent into another building and they really try to like separate us and not have us seen on like talk to each other yeah so they really try to separate all our um, all of us to 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 avoid like the um, how do you call it to avoid right like uprising in the prisons i'm sure yeah so eventually you just settle into a kind of routine day after day you don't know how long you're going to be there but you end up being there for quite some time and so i imagine that humans are 
an adaptable species, no matter what situation we're in, we eventually start to normalize it and fall into a routine. So did that happen with you in Insane? Um, yes, that happened to me with, that, that happened to me in Insane on the, from the second week, right? Like we had to end up because when they come, like actually when we come in, what, what was worse was like they try, they sugarcoat the prison itself, sugarcoated and treated us like in a nice way. Like, because they didn't tell us, like, they didn't treat us like, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, and, like, um, you have to spend here and this amount of time, right? Or they, they keep repeating that we are a guest. <laughs> so it's a weird, fucked up way. Yeah, it's, like, really strange way that they um, they try to main, like, maintain order in the prison. It's like, they say, they're like, we are guests here, so we, like, they're only, like, holding us accountable, like, they're only keeping us because of the police. So, like, they, they are not taking responsibility for our capture, right? So, like, one thing we really try to push and ask is, like, like who is like, responsible for our capture? And, like, they would not tell us. So, even in the police station, when they hold us in this one police station, we will keep, we keep asking, like, I demand my rights to my lawyers. If I'm being, if I'm going to be detained, I demand my rights for, like you know, a phone call to the lawyer, or a phone call to my home, home to at least tell them to find a lawyer or like to do something about it. And um, this is one thing that we keep them like asking them, asking them, and they keep trying to avoid this situation. So yeah, even the prison. So the prison was like, they only account like their only job is to hold whoever what they were told to hold. So um, we got arrested by the police, but then um, police, so police put us through a trial. So we were kept in prison throughout this whole time of the trial is going to go. And then um, we will only be released upon by the work of the judges in the, in the courthouse. So prison, yeah, so prison, prison, prison really, stayed as a middleman that is not his fault and like like it's not my fault i'm just doing my job and then um they would yeah they were trying to like really um not get any hate or bad vibe from the crowd so no one is really taking responsibility for what's happening no one is really giving proper information about what's going on or the protocols and while this misinformation and miscommunication continues to persist, you're also being deprived of all of your legal rights in that time as well. Yes, definitely. Right. So did you go to trial? So no one was going to the courthouse like the um, like it supposed to for a proper court case. No, um, no courthouse. Like there was no, there was just no courthouse that was um, issuing the laws or like giving us that oh we're detained for this law and we're detained for this law. There was only like um, there was only we were we were done through a video call, video conferencing call. Yeah, so we were called into this prison's main building in the middle, and everyone will arrive there, and then like they will call out each person's name, 
and then um and then this girl in the video call will tell us like she, presumably she's a, like she says she's a judge right but she was like in her 20s so she's quite a young judge um yeah giving i think like giving a lot of the older um like proper judges were away or doing cdm movements and everything yeah so we were yeah we were charged only via video conferencing right and what was the charge you were given i was given um the 505 505a yeah which was which is given in response to bad mouthing the military or like not yeah not complying with the military Mm. And what sentence was given with that? Um, so 505A sentence, it is up to three years in prison maximum. Yeah, so maximum two years and minimum, like minimum, uh, we, like throughout, through the information we've heard, um, like minimum was three months. Mm. So you were told that you were going to be there from three months to three years. Yeah, so there was the there was um like rumors of like three years going around and like people who I've met and everyone inside was saying at least two to three years. Mm, that must have really hit you like a ton of bricks. That realization. Yeah, like um, I still remember the day when they took us to the court and said like, so on the third day in, like, and that's when we realized that okay, we're not being released anymore. Yeah, so then we started seeing everyone like, you know, um, different person breaking down at different point of the time of arrest, right? Like, so we were, um, we were seeing like one person break down and then start crying and like, yeah. So it was quite horrible in that sense when they kept us in the dark and like we don't know what's going to happen. And in amongst our groups, there was uh, like, I was ready and I was prepared for it. Like I was like full prepared to serve. Like since I was in, I was prepared to stay for three years. So you did you have your breakdown moment, or were you mentally prepared enough that you you accepted it calmly? Like um, I accepted it, but the problem for me was the breakdown, and the problem for me was more of when people in the room keeps getting like coming with the news of hopes that we'll be released it tomorrow tomorrow and um yeah so the first week was pretty hard because um we keep giving like giving this hope, false hope that we will get released tomorrow and yeah we were detained for 25 days um and when we were released we didn't know we were going to be released that day so they just called us and then said you're on the list of released them. Wow. So you, so before your release, you had kind of settled into uh, a pattern and a mindset of like, I'm here for a couple of years. Yes. Like you basically have to, because otherwise you go crazy, right? Hmm. Hmm. And so how did, how did you start to adjust to that? How did you start to change your mindset and your thinking to really accepting and living with uh, several years ahead of you in a maximum security prison for really no reason. Well, um, like at that time, that was when like it was something that we 
just have to go through this like what I said to my mom all the time again. You know, if I get arrested, then that's, I get arrested because that is the world that we're living in today. It's like, um, yeah, mom's like, what if you died? And then I'm like, well, if I die, that's like, that's the world that we are living in today. Like, they are killing us, right? Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's how I have prepared myself for it. It's like, um, if this amount of people is wrongly accused and um, like charged, then we are going to stay. So inside, we were like, we were not going to stop. Like we were not going to stop fighting. Mm, so as you settled into prison life, those latter couple weeks before you were released, when you thought in that time that you might be there for a couple years, what were the daily routines like? Was it, was it boring? Was it scary? Was there violence? Uh, did you make friends? Were you depressed? What, what was kind of the, the vibe and the daily routine that you started to fit into? My daily routine was quite, like, it, it was quite boring. But the, the funny thing about one thing was when we arrived, we had to kind of like every morning around 7, we had to wake up for a head count. So they would do like head counts. And um, so they will come at seven. So we had to do head counts at seven. And then slowly as day went by, like it keeps getting earlier and earlier. And by the middle of it, like we had to get up at five in the morning and then like sit down for, sit in a position for half an hour, half an hour until someone comes and give the head counts. So they were really trying to like slowly put us into like a full prisoner um, like rules and attitude. Yeah, it was like a slow burn, right? It wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like, um, yeah, we were sentenced and then we were like bang, bang, and we have to adjust to this one. So they really like tried to make sure like we, we got we could adapt to the situations more rather than like pay forced upon us. Mm, why do you think they did that? I think mainly because they are scared of us. <laughs> like because there was, um, it was a sheer number. Like there was, say at at the time I was arrested, there was like three thousand, like at least two thousand of us. And yeah, at least two thousand of us inside. So like, and there's only like how many guards, right? And there's probably a lot of bullets there, but um, yeah. So I think the guards for their own safety and for their own um, like safety of it, pretty much I think that they were, yeah, I think they were just scared of us that they really try to just sugarcoat us and like try to put, um, yeah, try to treat us real nice and really doesn't want to get on the wrong side of us. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then they started to clamp down as the days and weeks went on. Yes. So like they, they will slowly, slowly adjust like the new, like the rules and regulations. Like, so we as a, because we're only detainees at the moment, right? We're not prisoners. So we're not actually technically, we're not even allowed to do any like hard labor jobs because we're not entitled to any of the jobs in prison and but then at one point they needed like manpower to help like 
to maintain what they have. But um, two things that um, at that time in inside when um, I was not happy about when I was released, I was surprised but not happy, right? Because like only half of us, like on the day that we got arrested, out of 42, only 16 was um, released. So there was like still half of that um, people had to leave behind. And like those people inside really becomes your friend because you were like sleeping with and sleeping and eating with them throughout the days, every day, right? So as day goes by, right? Um, and yeah, so as day goes by, there will be days that when I like, I will be missing the home, like missing my home and my parents, and then they will be cheering me up, and then there will be days when they are missing their homes, when like I'll try to cheer them up. So we really like bonded in a level that we've never actually bonded with um, in an outside world. So it's quite a sad thing to actually leave, like, like helplessly leave them behind. Right. Why do you think you were released? I think because of the pressure from outside. Like, even so, from the day that I was, we were arrested, like on the on the third of March, third of March and the fourth of March, the there was I think six hundreds of the university students that got arrested on the 3rd of March. Um, yeah, so um, those university students, there, it was quite a huge number. And um, they they came and they said, like, so they came with the attitudes of when one is arrested, everyone will get arrested, right? So that's how they were protesting in front of the police station demanding the release for the detain, like, for for catching their, some of their... Um, uni students so a lot of the uni students um on that day got captured in Damway. yeah so um they were um yeah so they i think they did quite a um ripple effect onto the public when um when they were arrested a lot of people were fighting for the detainees to release more and more. And only when I come out, I realized that, um, like one of the French ambassador or like French, French Institute's ambassador or some person was in front of the prison gate. Yeah. So I think like when, when pressured, when, the, when it was pressured, they feel pressured, and I think because of all those pressure that we were released. I see, right. And when you got released, what was it like adjusting back to normal life? You mentioned in some ways it was sad leaving the people you become friends with, but you're also going back to freedom, to family, to friends, and you're going back to a revolution that's still in process. And yet you were you faced those consequences of being a part of the revolution before how did it also affect your attitude in looking at what you wanted to do and support the resistance going forward? Um, yeah, for that, because like when we, when I was, when I was detained, right. Um, I keep telling myself and I keep telling people around me, it's like the fight's not over, the fight's not over because it's still going on and it's still fighting. Right. 
like because when I got arrested, it was like I know that like just by just by me being arrested, like or like one person being arrested, the protest and the movement will not stop. So I like I really have faith in the battles, and um, I really like keep optimistic about trying to move um, forward to the to the goal. So um, yeah, so I was quite um, optimistic about things, about the victory, or like about how we're going forward. So when I was arrested, and through the journey of me in the prison, and when one people were getting arrested, um, there was some. So while um, yeah, so when people were getting arrested, but then when I got released, it was a. Uh, Quite a weird feeling because I feel like I missed out a good battle in some ways, but my family, my and my friends were actually quite thankful because um, if not, I would have probably been worse, not released, right? <laughs> because of all the gruesome methods that they have been using on the later days, um, yeah. So everyone was more worried that if I was not in prison and outside, I would have been one of the 700 that got passed away. Yeah, March was a really brutal month, and the weeks after that have only gotten worse through today. So, you know, you were imprisoned. You lost your freedom. You were facing much worse consequences due to your involvement in the resistance movement. And when you came out, and now you see that the police and the soldiers are being even more brutal and violent than they were when you went in, did you have any hesitation or concern about going back into supporting the revolution? Um, like, to be honest, like, yes, I, I mean, I hesitate every day, right? <laughs> like, um, like, we had, like, because we're only humans, like, I hesitate every day even before um, um, like before I was getting arrested, like I was still, but like I go out with the mindset that like, oh, if I'm not going out and no one is going out. So um, yeah, like there, there is hesitation, but it's just like something that we have to overcome every day. And like, we have to just like, yeah. So every day when we try to be part of this revolution, um, I just have to be prepared for the worst and then hope for the best. Mm -hmm. But you're still proceeding in being actively involved and... Oh, um, yes, mm -hmm. yes, I am. Right. Like, I'm still actively involved. Um, but I, in the first couple of weeks, like, I laid load and then just write some... Um, yeah, so I just I wrote some of my thoughts and whatnot and tried to just... Um, catch up to the latest movements as well, so um, which has turned into revolution and um, which has seriously talking about how to like you know Molotov some buildings and establishments and I guess you lost your naivete. Yeah, I could say. Like, um, yeah, it was like when I come back out. It was so um, through the time of the prison and when I was inside and out, right. What I really managed to learn is the brutality and the um, and the stance of this military regime. 
because um there was one story in prison that um that I haven't like actually shared with anyone as um so one so in one of the night in the middle of the month like they transferred five prisoners into our room so th- by this time our cell is already like 80 people in one cell 82 of us in one cell and then um four five new five new person arrived and one of them was the NLD um like elected winner of this recent elections like NLD party in one of their Sham state yeah so he was i think from Taungji so he was a winner of the Taungji's um division and so he like also he came into our cell and then he talked to us about how he was being like captured and then how they tortured him so that that's when like i actually start learning about this um the black face of this regime that's when only after that moments and forward that whenever um, some of the death that they have announced and blamed it on the civilians was actually done by them right yeah so um this this shan minister was like in like they found out where he was hiding so they come up to him come up to the apartment raided raided the whole apartment arrested like um yeah hit him in the head and then dragged him down like four story buildings through the through the stairs and not from the um not from the lift just from the stairs they dragged him down and then put him in a car and then took him to the interrogation room and so yeah he he fools he said like um he was cuffed for 6 days <laughs> so he they never released his handcuff and every time he said it's tight they would smash and make it make the handcuff tighter and three, like for 6 days they left him with no food but little water and yeah and like he 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 would be he told me stories of how um like different ways of beating up and like in like full on interrogation that I've only seen in the movies and James Bond movies right yeah so he said one of them one of the journalists they were interrogation interrogating um um yeah so they the police the military the police military used like the blow torch gun on on a person to make him unlock his cell phone yeah so um yeah i think it was around in the middle of march that um yeah this news like when he said it it was like placed around in the middle of march and they yeah they were interrogating these and like torturing these people for ridiculous reasons right like this this um and the governor was being interrogated into admitting that he um he cheated his votes which he clearly isn't and like but like he have no choice until he said yes i'm a cheater they keep beating him up 
Yeah. So um, yeah. So that's how they were doing all these interrogation thing, and then um, he told me a story of all these gruesome, gruesome interrogation methods. And um, yeah. So but so for me, my um, my point in this revolution was that as long as I'm alive, I'll keep fighting. So even when I was like sent to prison, like I have my mindset like the battle is not finished yet, so we're still gonna keep fighting. So even in prison, that's why um like yeah, I try to manage to rally up like not rally up but like gather a, like a good amount of people to actually start a um effective hunger strike. Um yeah, and but then um yeah, but and then um and then the news got like. Because a lot of people know, and then I think, um, so it becomes like the information got like let loose. So the guards, some of the guards found out. So they actually try to really, um, yeah. So they put four, like they put six people into the confinement cells, like the more, um, I don't know how you call them in English, but there's like, it's like ten feet, ten feet wide, um, cross rooms. And they put in like three people in there, so only so three person will be sleeping in a really tight um, confinement cell areas. Um, yeah, so they they throw six person in and then try to interrogate them and see who is behind the movements. So that's when um, that's when we kind of um, noticed and didn't go ahead with the plan as well. Um, yeah, because. The, yeah, and then because um yeah a lot of people and then and then the next day a lot of people got released so um so yeah we just cancelled how we were fighting but yeah so um but in the prison like when on the days when they arrested some of the prisoners from Lantaya and Shutida it was one of the worst days I think it was on the sixteenth and seventeenth like. When Lantaya people were arrested, there was like underage kids, like 16, 17, being arrested. And then there were like over 70 like, um, uncles and uncles being arrested, but like beaten up to like pretty bad. One of the uncles, I think his like, he couldn't see anymore because of the, because of all the, um, yeah, because of all the punches and the um, and the beat up, one of his eye was like I think he went blind, so he, one of the eye he couldn't see anymore, and then the other eye, the other eyes also was like he can only see blurry image, and like he he wasn't given medical attention for, I mean like not proper like he wasn't given proper medical attention for four five days. Yeah, and yeah, and then some of the kids will have like the rubber bullets deep in their deep in their thighs and feet. And they've been left and like not properly um cared for medication for yeah, same three, four, five days. And you saw these prisoners that had come from the beatings you you saw the state they were in yeah i get to talk to them like uh they were so in there was time in there in prison where we can actually um go out and then just be in on outside 
So um, yeah, that's when all the other rooms and other cells are allowed to be outside as well. So in the same um, garden area, we were all, all the prisoners can actually like chat and talk to each other. So which way we could, that's how we could manage to like, um, you know, get some people to talk into doing a, doing a hunger strike as well. Right. Yeah. So I think this is definitely a turning point, definitely for Generation Z in terms of the understanding of who this military is, because many of their brutal acts and their cruel history had been told in family stories of what happened in the bad old days and how they behaved and what atrocities occurred. But many younger people in the younger generation hadn't actually had any direct experience of that themselves. They were just family tales, things that they heard around the house. And so in those early days, I think that there were a lot of protesters who were a bit naive or innocent or uh, optimistic in terms of, uh, well, this, you know, these, these, uh, these security forces won't actually hurt or harm their own people and their humans like me. And there were overt pleas of encouraging uh, police who were out at that time before soldiers were deployed to join the cause and to not harm protesters that were out. And as things started to turn violent and bloody in March and in April, those feelings started to change and that optimism turned out to be in many cases, you know, quite wishful thinking and naive thinking. And for the first time, this younger generation has directly experienced the terrible violence and cruelty and brutality that they'd only heard about from their parents and whispers growing up and that now they were the direct victims of this. And so I think this is also a turning point for what the resistance is doing, how, what their strategies are, how they're facing a reality that they perhaps weren't in touch with to this extent as they are now having been at the other end of this, uh, these attacks. And so for you know, speaking to you personally on an individual level, and then also reflecting about what it might mean on a on a greater collective level, where are we at this point in the resistance movement? How is this reality of seeing who the military actually is, what they're capable of doing, what they are able to do without any hesitation? How is that changing the mindset of going forward? Yeah, um... Yeah, this military, um, so how they have treated us and how they've, um, how they've tried to control us, um, it's, so for me, I'm one of the person who actually doesn't have any political knowledge or political background, right? So, but like even Aung San Suu Kyi and Aung San Suu Kyi's speech and all that stuff, like um, she had something that said like freedom from fear. So, but... Um, so this military is actually like have used like um, fear tactics on us, right? Like to win us over by brute force or like by showing them, like sh- like making us fear of them. So um, this is the only thing that they have actually um, used it. Like I think because like. 
the military itself fears that they will lose power, right? So I think for this battle and the, for this revolution and all the movement, um, and in the fight, I guess, like, one thing that can throw you off the fight is when you fear your enemy. The enemy becomes bigger than whatever, like, what he is, right? Yeah, so I think for us, like, right now, um, one, yeah, for the revolution, when the revolution happened, like, and when we called it a revolution, it was actually on the revolution day of the history. So on the 27th of March, that was a revolution day. And they, the army changed it to Armed Forces Day. But, um, yeah, army changed it to Armed Forces Day. But then on the 27th, when we, um, when, when I was actually out at that time again too. So when I come back, I went back onto the road and saw the last protest. It was, yeah, it was quite extreme. And yeah, it has turned into revolution. So yeah, um, the, for me, I think it's like now, like when I come back, come back out, what I've noticed from the army is like, actually they are also quite scared of us as much as like, we are of them when they use their guns. Like for us, uh, like we're only fearing is the guns that they have, right? Because like, truth be told, they're not very bright and educated crowd. <laughs> like they're an institution, like because they're an out outdated institution and they survive from like the tactics of 20 years ago. Right, so like, they still think Facebook and, I mean, they, they, just the other day, they still think YouTube is is bad for um, for the young kids because you can, you know, search whatever stupid stuff on YouTube. Yeah, so they are quite an outdated, um, old-fashioned institution. And they're run by, like, I think their main core is run by monarchy like they really these these generals they really want to be treated as kings like, as far as Myanmar's story goes the, our histories only have kings and kingdoms right when um yeah after, and then we got into British colony and before after British colony all we know from our history is how to run a monarchy so there was never democracy was never on um, on the platter of the, how do you call it? Like the government system. Yeah, and so these people, they only know how to give orders and they are trained not to question the orders. So like, um, so they have never questioned the orders. So um, yeah, so the wherever the order came from, they... Like, they just do it out of fear. and Like, so the only way to win them is if they um, over over fear, right? So they're scared that if they don't follow the order, they will have to go through two, two times and they will have to, um, they will be punished for not following orders and whatnot. Yeah, so, but I think for us right now, like, with, with the revolution and people on their political 
levels of fighting and um, on on the government's levels of fighting again too. So like from Generation Z, I think it has moving up a generation or two, this fight. Um, hence why now we're at this stage. Like, because in the protest movements and the whole of January, like February, March, and yeah, up to February and March, like, like we were only protesting. But um, but like it wasn't clearly it wasn't working, <laughs> and um, so now, but like so yeah now like we as protesters like we cannot protest anymore because they are eliminating us as a threats. Like we're being seen as threats to be like destroyed, and that's how military is treating us. Like military is treating his civilians, his own people as um, as a threat to their systems. So they are eliminating us. They're really trying to eliminate us like enemies. So like right now we're really like, so now we're only retaliating the response to their violence. Right. So yeah, I think like right now at, at the stage that we're in, like, um, is just to get rid of the fear inside of us that they have placed upon us. Yeah, that's right. So fear is the classic playbook of the Tatmada and instilling fear in the protesters from previous generations and the monks when they would go out on the streets, in the ethnic groups when uh, when when they would carry out attacks there. Uh, Rakhine, Rohingya, of course, yeah. So this has always worked. This they they have been so inhumane and so cruel and so violent and randomly violent as well that human nature of fear takes over in terms of uh, the personal safety and safety of one's loved ones and the possibility of surviving in a dark system becomes more compelling than the fear of fighting that system where anything could be taken at any moment's notice. But it seems like that playbook is having a different outcome now that those traps of fear and of negotiation within oneself, suppression of that fear of not uh, not recognizing the the state of that fear or the response the response to it, but I, I think suppression in previous generations has really been one psychological tool in dealing with it. Now it seems that's not happening. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think like now we have progressed so much because, like, I think um, we as our country was divided for so long. And I think what they've done has or like um, unite us to a different level that we couldn't do it with like by ourselves. Like it's the help that they give like um, just because of this coup now we like understand the past 50 years of history and how it was fabricated and how badly it was structured and written. Because we were like we were taught false histories for twenty years. Like I mean ten years that I went to school. Like every like the whole high school, the whole histories of every bit of the history that was taught in our school 
have been fabricated to um, up to the June test level, right? So we were like, actually, we didn't know what we were learning, but we were, we, so yeah, we thought like, okay, we were all like, so yeah, um, we were all in Myanmar and like, all, even in Myanmar's, um, even in Myanmar's history, it was like um, overly, how do you put it, fictionalized rather than an actual history. Hmm. And when did you realize that? I mean, I only like I realized it only at this time of this coup. Mm, and what made you realize it? What made the light bulb turn on in your mind that what you thought was history was fabricated? Um, like, I mean, this was a bit um, when the coup happened, like. It was before the coup, it was a silly thing, but like, so we were taught, so there is four generals in Pakan, history of Pakan. And in our book, like these four generals were written as one could, like one is so strong, he can go up, um, up and down Eyalwadi River swimming like hundred times in one day, right? <laughs> Yeah, so this was in the textbooks and like we were taught as kids for these people that strong level of things. But as I grew older, like I haven't like I thought like it's a it's a strange mix between fiction and history because like we also like because of the religion also right like religion also have like all these weird um like not weird, but like more holy type of um, strange legend to the histories. Um, so yeah, like I never questioned it until someone pointed out, and so like as someone pointed out in my adult age, like only around that, like it around coup time. Uh, actually, in prison, actually, yeah. Uh, so he uh, only when he pointed out like the history of Bukhan and then all that. And then we learned, and that's when I realized. So it was like, like right now at coup. So in my, on my 30 years. Wow. So prison was actually an educational experience for you and learning more about the real history. Yeah, pretty much. Cause like I was thrown into this place with actual um, political prisoners. Right. So now I have the education of actually how, um, some politics level works. Mm, so you mentioned how you got an education in politics and history, and you alluded just now to religion as well. So did this also affect your thinking in terms of Burmese Buddhism and your identity as a Buddhist and the Sangha? Was your thinking and understanding of this also affected in your newfound education? Yes, like definitely big time. How so? Like um, so relig religion itself, right? Um, like because for me, up to my late twenties, I haven't actually like I was a practice Buddhist. I guess like, I was only Buddhism by practice, like because my 
parents used to do it. Like my parents told me to do it. I was doing it, and like um, so, there was always like ways and even monks and stuff, right? Like so, I would go to monkhood, and then like before I was only doing because I was told to do. But so only in my late twenties, then like by choice, I went into monkhood. And then try to discover it again and how see how um, religion was actually constructed, because um, for us for this fifty yeah for this fifty years of um, military dictatorship, they've really tried to like provide everyone using religion also as a platform to brainwash. Yeah, so um, yeah, we only started seeing all these. Um, things also through coup and um, around coup. The um, like for us mainly is the Buddhism, right? And Buddhism doesn't actually have like a single person. Like now, when people are praying, we're praying to this Kodama um, Sopya, but Kodama, um, yeah. So. But now studying it, Kodama was only a man practiced into having this state of mind, right? So he actually, yeah. So, um, but anyway, my point was, like, so because of all these, like, nowadays in Myanmar, especially in Myanmar, we think we are like closest to God, and all these people who are doing the religious, all these religious people who are doing, like, the insane institutionalized donations and Buddhist Buddhist things um, are kind of how do you put it like capitalized within their structures like um, so a lot of people will donate to these monasteries right so monasteries will be having like massive um, like aircon rooms and monasteries will be having all these um, TVs and monasteries will be having all these um, facilities to make like the like the attendees better so people will actually come and donate to the monastery to go through the practice and then like just from donations now um, a lot of the yeah, a lot of the monks, I think, are now caught up with, like, the Buddhism itself and their preach with their own interest, own self-interest, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's when I'm like, I've kind of lost faith in the religion from, from this, like, not losing faith in the religion, but losing faith in people's um, thinking of religions because like, it was actually quite sad to see how like some of the monks turned up and was just purely focused on his self-interest and not the actual practice. Hmm. Hmm. That's really interesting. So your identity and belief system within Buddhism, you're also seeing how that has been shaped and perhaps perverted like so many other things through the military's control of the country and using and perverting 
Buddhism and the monkhood and Burmese Buddhist teachings and culture and everything else to have a more nefarious ends to serve their own purpose. And so embedded in this Burmese Buddhist identity and practice is uh, are these structures that are actually supporting and self-serving the military. And so what that makes me curious about is what would a new Burmese Buddhism going forward perhaps look like that was free of those influences? How can a monkhood and a practice and the teachings be preserved and be celebrated and embraced with this part taken out? And then that's probably a very theoretical question that we're not able to answer at this point. But it, it's also very interesting because historically, Burmese Buddhism, it's this is what launched the world mindfulness movement. You know, the, there's a, there's millions of Vipassana practitioners all over the world. There's people who've never taken a Vipassana course, but practice some kind of mindfulness. And this all comes from 19th century Myanmar before the Tatmadaw was formed. So there is this potential in this country for how it is able to embrace and propagate the teachings free of military influence that's extremely innovative and critical and masterful in its process and its teaching. But we're in a stage now where so much of it has been uh, infected by the military rule. So I wonder, as you've been going through this self-discovery yourself in terms of seeing that the history was fabricated, that the politics is made up, and that the Buddhism itself is uh, is infected, is, is stained by some of the military's involvement, what ideas do you have of going forward of what a Buddhist, a Burmese Buddhist identity and practice and culture and monkhood could look like? that is managed to be free of the stain on it, this influence. Yeah, I think like if I have to go into a bit of that, like um, I will have to take it to like back to how Myanmar people um, normally were um, before, right? Before as in not before, but like during these times, like when um, a lot of the foreigners were asked, oh, how can you have so little and be so happy or, like, be happy, right? Like, and it's, like, because we're happy with what we had. And I think that's still um, to find us to these days. It's, like, part of the drive from the Buddhism or, like, the Burmese way of things is, like, yes, I have this. And, like, um, yeah, the sense of greed or, like, the need to get more or have more doesn't necessarily come to us naturally so i think um that is one um that is one point that we have as burmese but i think what um the military did and took advantage of it is the um is that military bring us down to this poverty level so low that um people were forced to be um yeah, people were forced to lie, cheat, and, like, abandon each other or, like, um, to step mm-hmm. over each other. They set other up a system to, that brought out the worst in human nature and they encouraged that. Or, like, to reach certain stages, right? Um, yes, yes, exactly. So, um, like, I myself discovered it 
inside prison as well. It's when like, um, so there was 42 of us and then they moved us into a bigger cell and then put in another 40 people and becomes 80 of us. No, actually it becomes 120 of us. So then they divided us. So um, they divided the whole room in half and put, put like, anyway, they separated the people. But then, um, yeah, and then when I was, like, when my family sent me some food or, like, some good, um, yeah, so they actually managed to send me uh, a KFC into prison. So by that time, I had to make a choice of, like, like, who do I, like, I, because I, I've been sharing my food with everyone inside, right? And, like, the people I eat together with, there's, like, 18 of us. Wait, sorry. There is 12 of us. So we always eat together. And then it was, like, two pieces of chicken and two burger came. So I'm, like, how am I going to divide this? But, but um, yeah, so, but luckily, a lot of um, my other friends, were um, Muslim friends, so they didn't eat. Um, they didn't eat if it's not halal. So then they they were not like eating it. So I managed to sp split that and then give it away to some of the people. But so like I have to choose, like who would I give these away to, right? So um, yeah, so I just choose people who will be of my like who will be of like who's of my best interest and like who will be more important to me. So yeah, people who are, so I give I give my share of food to the people who are close to me, and then people who potentially like are helping me or will help me in the future, in this day in the prison. Right? So I think this is how the military had done it to my parents. So my parents' generation and the previous generation of the survivor of eighty-eight revolutions, who remain in the country and survived, have survived through this, um, through this climb of social um, inequalities. Mm -hmm. And how did they survive? What, what did they learn to do or were manipulated to do to survive through that controlled system? Oh yeah, that one. Um, so I think it was, it's like a hustling way, right? Because like um, how my dad has survived through um, all these things was like, so now he can, he actually have friends from both sides of parties in this mm -hmm. stage. So in Myanmar, so my, because they, they are businessmen, so they have to learn how to like adapt and get things done with the um, with cooperation in cooperation with the military, which is one skill that I will never be able to do. Yeah, because like even now, like I can never bribe someone. Like if someone does a good job, I'm happy to like pay for them for the job that they're getting. And then like I can never make my mindset to bribe people to get things done. So it sounds like this fear was not just, uh, uh, it was a fear of, of everything and everyone. It wasn't just a fear of what the military would do to the people, but it was also a fear 
that even when the military wasn't present, it was a self-censorship and it was a fear of what one could get captured with or what one could say or do that would get one in trouble. And so that fear prevented certain actions and conversations from even happening. But then it was also a fear of one another. It was a fear of the different ethnic groups and uh, geographical regions and religions and uh, and everything else. So it, so even so, the trick was that was played was that even when the military disappeared, there Myanmar is such a diverse country, and there was a fear between one group and another uh, where the military didn't even have to do anything. They just had to kind of set it up for that fear to play out, and then light a match to it. And we certainly saw that a couple of years ago with the Rohingya crisis. But in this these present days after the coup, that those fear tactics, both fear of the other and fear of the brutality of the military, it seems like that's not really taking hold this time. No, definitely not. <clears throat> and um um and that's the that's the bright light we see at the end too is like um, there's two things I'm thankful for in this coup is like military, like actually seeing military as a common enemy and everyone uniting into one um, human being. We're all human being, right? Like, because yeah, as you mentioned as well, and, like Myanmar is super diverse, and it was like military has. So like me personally, even in Rohingya case, like. I got brainwashed into military, some of military's false news. And like, I got derailed from how military actually is. And I thought military actually is changed, changing and or have changed a bit. So like, yeah, even after military, uh, if after, even after, after Rohingya crisis, I'm, I wasn't thankful. Like I wasn't on the military side. Right. But, um, like I, some of the fake news got to me and then it was like, oh, so then it was, um, yeah, so then my view, um, point of view changed a bit. But like right now, for the, after this coup, it was, um, it was so good in a sense when um, everyone did the, everyone did the Longji um, protests and start hanging women's Longji on the streets. Mm-hmm, because the soldiers were afraid to cross under the women's women's undergarments and and uh, lower skirts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the history, there was all. It's that's the religious factor also, right? Um, but which, like in today's modern world, like which seems ridiculous and stupid. And- right. Well, I, I would actually I would differ. I would say that's a quality of superstition. Go. There's nothing in Buddhism that would support that view that that is a superstitious superstitious cultural value that is very separated from the teachings of the buddha 2500 years ago yes so there is a lot of that still happening in Myanmar, and um and this coup has washed off a lot of all those superstition things and um and what actual buddhism is and yeah, and the spirituality. Right. So, so what is actual Buddhism and spirituality? If it's separated the wheat from the chaff, it's if it's if it's found a way to weed out the silly and stupid superstition and um, cultural beliefs. Uh, what is left of what is valuable in that religion? Uh, for for you personally, 
how are you grappling with and understanding your Buddhist identity? What are the values of the Buddhist teachings today? Like for me, um, I don't see Buddhism as religion. I only see Buddhism as practice. And yeah, so I only see Buddhism as a, as a practice. And what's that so practice? Like, um, and it's like credit to my dad as well. Like he have trained me in a way. So, and through uh, some of the monks that uh, my family and like some of the monks that I know from all their teaching, like I've realized that it's only a practice to the mind because mind is such a complex and um, yeah, complex human brain and the mind of it. Com such a complex structure that um, like if we can give it an enough practice, then we can just live life easy. And what is that practice for you? Okay, yeah. Um, so, like, for me, the, the practice of this mindfulness that um, Buddha, or, like, as Buddha suggested and how he um, see the enlightenment, um, I think, like, it's the, it's the practice, like, if we, so I only see it as practice and not as religion also, it's because, like, when I look back, like when you actually look back at all the religions and their basic fundamental, it's all the same, right? Like um, there's things that we cannot like, like kill another human beings, like or like um, yeah, or, and there's means that we cannot like steal or we cannot. So those are all um, some of those like morals, living morals, um, everyday rules. Um, are um, are like a line, like in all of almost all religions, as um, in the religions, right? Um, as far as I know. But um, yeah, so even like so, if I take those away and then like and then try to see Buddhism as a religion, and then like and then there was all these um, clouded of spirituality, uh, not spirituality, what was that? Superstitions of the old ways and the um, um, and the culture superstitious beliefs. So yeah, um, if you take out all those, like all that is left from what the Buddhas have said, and all that is like a, it's all self practice. So yeah, um, I think self practice is actually what um, can give me like a proper practice to um, to my own, how do you call it, inner peace type of thing. Because every day we're struggling with, like every day we're struggling with, um, every day we're struggling with the daily task of, and like depression and all these, um, effects from other people and all like you know your brain is taking in all these informations and processing into different emotions and all that and i think like buddhism and the practice that like yeah the practice of buddhism is to um just clear all those like to keep refreshing 
you on your daily basis, right? So I think I feel like if you can refresh your mind every day, that is Buddhism. You're talking, of course, now about the basic human condition, no matter where we are in life, the existence of suffering, of dukkha, the unpleasant mental states, mental complexes like depression, anger, other things like that, and how the daily practice of the Buddhist teachings give us a certain freshness and letting go and dealing with these difficult states that come. However, you and everyone in Myanmar now are not living in a normal state. You are living in a state of terror and uh, where where things are happening every day that are just uh, impossible for those uh, those of us outside to process and to even comprehend how they could be happening. So as interesting as it is to look at the value of this Buddhist practice in normal daily life, I'm especially curious about the state that you're living in of the the fear, the panic, the brutality, being imprisoned, uh, the the types of security you have to do every day, the conversations you're having. Uh, has your background of Buddhist practice played a role in helping you mentally and perhaps even physically, emotionally, in any, any other way to manage the stress and the trauma of these extraordinary circumstances? Um, yeah, it has. I think it has to a certain point um, throughout my journey because um, I because all the <clears throat> so out of for all the days in prison, right? There was, um, like, on for the first couple of weeks, I could stay still. I could maintain really strong spiritually because of, um, I think, because of all the practice that I've had. Yeah, it was just to like. Um, yeah, when um, even when things were quite, I mean, like even when I'm in prison and I'm like, like it was already like ten days in, right? Like we can see like a lot of people just <clears throat> different people coping in different ways, and like like um, I can see a lot of friends, like four of them got arrested together. They were friends, and then like they blame one person and like, yeah. So like a lot of all these complex human um, emotions and response came out in prison. And so it definitely helped me through my journey of um, how, um, how I was acting back then and now. Yeah. But I think like one thing that Buddhism is, I mean, like not Buddhism, but that superstition thing, is blocking also again into Buddhism is like, I mean, thou shalt not kill or something like that, right? Like, um, right now it's the revolution and like, how are you going to win a war if you don't want to kill anyone, right? Yeah, that's a question that many people are grappling with is that the revolution started out nonviolently. The people, protesters, were completely committed to the idea of nonviolence for a long time. And even though violence hasn't really broken out in any big way yet. There have been some small instances and there's been a lot of discussion among those in the resistance movement of how how people can win, basically. Uh, what gives you the better chance of winning? Is it is it 
a complete and utter commitment to nonviolence, or is it moving into violence in some kind of strategic way? And then, of course, there's the religious element behind. There's the spiritual element behind of, uh, as you said, all religions have some version of thou shalt not kill. In Buddhism, it's the five precepts. And the, the most important of those five is not harming any other living being. That includes even insects. I mean, you're not even supposed to swat away a mosquito that is biting you as you're sitting for meditation or, or doing anything else. So where do you stand with that, both from a strategic level in terms of wanting to win, wanting to uproot this evil that has been in your country and controlling your culture for so long, and as well in a religious level of being committed to these teachings and yet facing this impossible, terrible situation? Yeah, um, that's one thing I'm trying to train myself now to is like, because I mean, thou should not kill and like killing another human being is also a token like, or a toll. Like, it's not just a toll. Like, it's not an easy step. Like, just to kill another person is like, um, yeah, one person have to put a lot of toll on their spirituality. Is how I see it. Or like, like yeah, like someone have to prepare mentally a lot to kill another person, right? Like, I think these soldiers are doing it easily because they were, this is their daily life, or this is how they were trained, and this is how they were brainwashed, or this is how they were taught, right? Um, but, like, right now, a lot of the people are turning, like, I mean, sadly, a lot of young people have to turn to holding weapons to fight them back again because, like, as I studied the enemy, right, like, as I have studied and, like, as I have seen how, military operates and how military runs like they are not going down and like if like they're the type of opponent that will not like i mean they have guns so they came up with guns so if you don't if you don't fight guns with guns then you're never gonna win right so i think like when um samurais try to like slash <laughs> When, like in history, when samurais try to win the guns, like samurais will also fail, right? So like you need guns to fight guns. Like it's the like equal, equal, um, how do you call it? Equal balanced in power that needs to retaliate. But like I, there's only two ways I see it in for this battle, and like to go if we, if we want to go non-violently. Like, I think, like, we have to prepare to die. Like, if we don't want to kill, we have to be prepared to be killed. And a lot of people have to do that. And a lot of people have to show that. And um, a lot of people will die for it. But how can you change one man's ego? Like, if he, if he, if he lives in this oblivious little bubble... And if he doesn't hear about all these news, about all these debt, or if he choose not to listen to all these news and all these debt, he can easily still, like, like clear with clear conscience, pray every day, and like with clear conscience, like live on with his life, and then, um, you know, keep keep giving these brutal um, orders to retaliate whatever happens, because he, like, ignorance is a bliss in that way, right? Like, 
I feel like that's why um, some superstitions and some all these, um, um, I feel like I call um, some, I call bullshit on some of the Buddhist or like some of the religious superstitions ways. It's like, yeah, so how is he going to go to hell if he doesn't know he's committing a crime? Right? Like if one person doesn't know that he's committing a crime, then he will not go to hell, right? Like, so yeah, so all these concepts of religion and all that makes me question is all those things. But um, yeah, so for, for them to like lay down their weapons, like you have to go into their room, point a gun to their head and tell them to lay down their weapon is how I see it. Right. And that's certainly the question that everyone is talking about right now going forward in the resistance is how, where do they fall on this violent, violence, nonviolence question? What, what is going to be the winning strategy? And if one is choosing, as you say, to go towards nonviolence, it takes an enormous amount of courage in knowing the brutality that's in front of you. If one is going to support some kind of, some degree of violence, then one has to be prepared to break this most sacred of human religious values that you find across all teachings. And so this is yet another instance where the Tamada has brought out the worst in human nature and having to make this decision, which, you know, anyone who's not living in this moment in Myanmar really can't begin to understand what it's like mentally to start to go through this process. Yeah, but I think like right now and our advantage and like since day one, how everyone's been acting is like if everyone still works, then we can still reach to the goal, right? When everyone push, it will move. Like um, it's as cliche as it sounds, like um, like as cliche as it sounds, I still know that a lot of people um just need to still know who the common enemy is and just like if they can't do more than that like they don't have to do it but they have to do it to the level that they have committed to do it right so right now like um because i was sent to prison and like so i have like now i'm a bit late to like push myself into going into army or joining the army or like the resistance army or the federal army right um, so a lot of the people and a lot of the young people have actually moved and like gone into trainings from um, since um, yeah so since things has getting taught um, so since we've got this um, new government and you like a new NUG government since like people are in support to this NUG new government so now people are moving into training to be in the inside the army and whatnot. So those people are doing those things already. So like right now, like me myself, I think I don't think I have the mentality or like the um, the physicality or um, yeah or anything to hold a gun or a weapon, right? Because yeah, because I don't think I can do it. But um, there's a lot of people who can do it, and there's a lot of people who are going to do it. And so I think as long as I, like, I can support them in a, in their 
in into the how do you can say what's like as long as I can like try to direct everyone like like yeah as long as we can we can go in a way that everyone's pushing but everyone's um driving to the same goal and I think we still it's like the achievable goal still. Mm, so what do you think is the winning strategy now at this point in the resistance movement? What do you think has the best chance of being successful? Um, I think right now, like, because they're really trying to govern the whole country, right? And before it works, like, before, like, before it, I mean, before it has, like, they've done it before and it works before, right? So, but right now, and with the difference of the um, new government and all the international support and international media support and all that, like, they, like, um, like, they, as long as they know they cannot govern us, I think that is, like, the winning move for us, like, to keep showing that we cannot be like yeah we cannot be governed like so now with the new government and the revolution and all the KIA and KNU all these um, military um, rebel what do you call it? sorry ethnic armies ethnic armies groups are um, treating them as rebels and like trying to fight them off as rebels so um, right now they're really trying to like control the main cities so, like when if Yangon and Mandalay and Taungji can show the resistance and say that we will not be governed, um, then I think, and then slowly, like fight off their their soldiers, right? Because a lot of like I think now even as well a lot of the soldiers, like are not dedicated fighters. Like we, our revolution armies are dedicated fighters, right? Like we're training the dedicated fighters and whatnot. So like if that if the fighters are gonna do the fighters job then like and politicians are gonna do the politicians jobs and so if we actually manage to deliver on every level of um, place. So like yeah me as a filmmaker, so now all I can Maybe if I can just do a filmmaker's job, but you know, apply this to the revolution, and that's yeah. So I think that's the goal that I think we can go now. So if we're gonna go long term, then I think we should go in that towards the same direction still, like which is opposing this military regime and trying to take down this military government and trying to do it as fast as we can in this couple of days. I mean, not a couple of days, sorry, a couple of months. Right, right. And you are a filmmaker. I'm glad you brought that up. You professionally trained in Sydney, Australia, and you came back to Myanmar uh, when the reforms were taking place and there was more freedom and more possibility and you worked commercially. And I was going to ask you about that. So now that 
we're in this moment of uh, resistance and the revolution and everyone is putting their skills to use for supporting this movement that's going on. What have you been doing with your filmmaking? Have you made anything? Or if you haven't yet produced something, do you have something in mind for how you'd, what you'd like to do with your skills as a filmmaker? Right. Um, so um, from the first week onward in the, my protest movements, I actually started filming on the streets. So like um, we actually took out the camera and then um, did like a, like the documentary type of interviews to, to some, a lot of the people. So like, I think I managed to interview like at least 20 people um, while, while protests were happening. So yeah, like since, since the protests happened and then since I was like, since we were out protesting on the street, I tried to use my skill of knowledge applied to this battle. So we, I was doing interviews and then I was in two days of edit. So just about to finalize the edit and then I got arrested. Oh gosh. Have yeah. you picked that up again? Um, so I have been picked that up again because the editor had to run and relocate. So, um, yeah, so I'm still in the process of trying to get the data back into my hand and then, um, trying to, um, trying to work it out. Right. Right. Well, I, I know it's getting late there and I, uh, thank you so much for staying up with us and being able to share this. And I want to close with a last question going back to your spiritual practice. We were talking a bit about the household that you grew up in, the gratitude you had for your father and your family for bringing in certain specific monks and traditions that allowed you to learn some of the more true essence and practice of the teachings rather than falling into more of the superstitions and the organized religion. And we never got a chance to hear exactly which practice you and your family were engaged in. So I'd be really curious to hear a bit more specifically or technically, were there lineages that you were involved in as you were practicing meditation or were there particular monks, uh, techniques? What, what, what kind of practice were you doing and are you doing now? Um, I think like we like we don't really have a lineage or anything, but um, the practice we do is just um, normal the tirawada way. So just a breathing exercise through nose. Yeah. So um, and I think like for me as well, like one of my friend, I. I talked with one of my friends about this as well and he said like so one of the one of the oldest way that the the buddhist um how do you call it gautama used so the one of the old practice that the gautama used and the monks used right like was to um just focusing on the breathing and in and out and the um the awareness of the, um, the presence is the practice that, like, 
um, yeah, my dad has used and taught us. And and, and, and when I was in my monkhood, um, I was, I like there was three or four different ways for me to do this practice. Like there's one way of the 10 days retreat, 10 days retreat. And then there is, um, I think 30 days retreat and 20, like, or like, yeah. So those like, um, or 10 days, but no, um, 10 day, like no speaking retreat as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I didn't do any of those like other practice, but I only try to go into the monkhood because of the, um, because of the culture and the tradition also. Right. Um, but, like, yeah, so being a monk really kind of puts me into that state of where um, where when I experienced it, it was like a whole um, whole another level of living style, right? Like, so, yeah, so it was like, it was, so the basic monk code living style is like not needing to live with any other, um, human attachment, like human world attachments, like yeah. So from what I've learned is like um, to go into that is just to not have attachment, and so yeah, they're basically trying to not get you to attach from whatever your old self is or like whatever have um, whatever have attached to you before. If I don't have any attachment from the other on, onto the outside world, then I think I'll happily be in a monkhood. Because even when I was in twenties and when I was um like staying there as a monk, yeah, like one thing I thought of was like I could easily live as a monk if I'm not like entitled to like come back out to do some responsibilities for social responsibilities, right? Like like to the parents and to the families and yeah. If I didn't have any of those, or like if I'm ready to leave behind all of those. Yeah, and that's certain. Certainly, one of the real beautiful and unique aspects of modern Myanmar to me is the fact that this monkhood is still so vibrant, despite the fact, as we talked about before, the military culture and the organized religional aspect, the superstition sinking in and uh, seeping in, I should say, to the um, um, to different parts of it, there still is the possibility, despite that, of someone who wants to renounce the world for a short or a longer period of time and develop detachment to live a simple lifestyle, to live off the charity of others, to follow a set of moral precepts and to benefit and to grow spiritually and doing so within a structured place in the society where you're actually being supported by society and you're giving back to society all while in one kind of way being outside of it and allowing being able to achieve your own spiritual growth. And that's something that in the modern world is so rare to find where there's actually a a place in the societal structure where you can seek your own salvation and it's to the benefit of everyone. So it's, it's, it's a really beautiful part of the culture that that is able to happen. And, you know, despite the horrors and the terrors that are happening now, I hope that it's something that will soon be able to continue to happen in its uh, 
traditional and, and simple form again. Yeah, I think like the numbers have dropped, but definitely um, there's still um, this the culture that has been passed down, right? right. But um, so if, yeah, for me personally, self-realization now is like, like I don't actually need to practice Buddhism to be, like, I don't actually need to be a monk to practice Buddhism, right? Like Buddhism's all around us and like we could practice in like, yeah, there's no shape and form. We can actually just, because it's just a way of, it's actually just a way of life that we should be practiced. So like being a monk was only, um, being a monk and detaching all these um, human needs and things is also like just a training for you to train your mind to not be attached to all these things so then you're not distracted by right and and if you're able to find any measure of practice or awareness or mindfulness at this moment with what you're going through now you know that is a kind of training grounds a terrible training grounds but a training grounds nonetheless of being able to observe the mind in ways that will you know hopefully bring about quite a bit of wisdom and compassion going forward. Yeah. So with that, I know it's quite late for you. And I thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to share everything you have about such a wide ranging conversation and wishing you to be safe for the movement to be successful and for you to grow in your spiritual practice as everything continues. Cheers. Thanks. Um, well, thanks for the opportunity and, uh, giving the time for me to actually speak up about all these After today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the situation is in Myanmar. We are doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. And because our nonprofit is now in a position to transfer funds directly to the protest movement, please also consider letting others know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable and to those who are especially impacted by this organized state terror. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburmaoneword.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. 
Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration. listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We'd appreciate it very much if you could rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. You can also subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you can't find our feed on your podcast player, please just let us know and we'll ensure it can be offered there in the future. Also, make sure to check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information available at insightmyanmar.org. And I also invite you to take a look at our new nonprofit organization at betterburma.org. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in on discussions currently going on on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You're also most welcome to follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts by the same name. If you're not on social media, feel free to message us directly at info at insightmyanmar.org. Or if you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that form here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible. Currently, our team consists of two sound engineers, Mike Bink and Martin Combs. There's, of course, Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. And a special Mongolian volunteer who is asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. In light of the ongoing crisis in Myanmar, a number of volunteers have stepped in to lend a hand as well and so we'd like to take this time to appreciate their effort in our time of need. And we're always on the lookout for more volunteers during this critical time, so if you'd like to contribute, definitely let us know. We'd also like to thank everyone who has assisted us in arranging for the guests we've interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come on and share such personal, powerful stories. 
Finally, we're immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We want to remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and don't necessarily reflect the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note that as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there's a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, or excerpts of any episodes. Also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we're very open to collaboration. So if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. If you would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. During this time of crisis, all donations now go towards supporting the protest movement in Myanmar through our new nonprofit, Better Burma. You may give by searching Better Burma on PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, GoFundMe, and Patreon, as well as via credit card at betterburma.org donation. You can also give right on our Insight Myanmar website, as all donations given there are directed towards the same fund. And with that, we're off to work on the next show, so see you next episode. Yeah, well.